Last week we started to take a look at John Stott's argument for the biblical option of annihilationism. You know, we considered uh, two of his arguments for that. We'll look at two more of them today. And then we're going to look at some other things that come against his argument. So, if you recall, John Stott, he's, he's now one of the... One of the uh, one that's gone on before us, but a great brother in the Lord, and he came to the conclusion, um, as he said, I do not dogmatize about the position to which I have come. I hold it tentatively, but I do plead for frank dialogue among evangelicals on the basis of Scripture. I also believe that the ultimate annihilation of the wicked should be at least accepted as a legitimate, biblically founded alternative to the eternal conscious torment. Obviously, that's uh, you know not the position of this body, and I'm certainly not saying it's my position, but I will say I've been challenged by thoughts about annihilationism that I had not heard before. A lot of things in our faith we tend to, I think, just sort of gloss over and immediately dismiss because we've heard contrary to the <coughs> new concept or whatever, or particular understanding that we haven't been exposed to. We've had such a contrary position to that just sort of by nature for so long that we it, it just doesn't even... You know, we, we, we dismiss it out of hand, um, which is not necessarily a good thing, not necessarily a bad thing either. I mean, if someone were to come and say, hey, you know, Jesus is not God, and i got a pretty good argument for Scripture from it, then I'd be like, all right, well, you know, I already know a lot of the arguments. I think I know all the arguments against that, you know what I mean? And probably the average Christian could argue against that pretty well too. So I think those we could pretty much dismiss out of hand, say a prayer for that poor misguided man or woman, and you know, get on to the next thing, which would be evangelizing them. But, be that as it may, because uh, because he and others, and he would not be considered a Rob Bell type person. Now, when I say that, what am I talking about? Who is Rob Bell, and why would I say John Stott is not being a Rob Bell? Or Rob Bell is certainly not being a John Stott. Anyone know who Rob Bell is? Was that the Marcel guy, Rob Bell? Say again? Was that the Marcel guy? Rob was he? Bell? I know Mark Driscoll was a Marcel oh, guy. Oh, okay, that's not, that's not, that's not Didn't so he go... Universalism? I don't know if Rob Bell went to Universalism. He might have, though. That would seem to be the logical conclusion of the book that he wrote called Love Wins. Didn't he also write that, like, electric blue shoes or something like that, too? If he did, you would know it, because okay. you know weird stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he may very well have it. Uh, you, you tend to be able you know this great... I want you on my Christian Trivial Pursuit team. <laughs> um... So it's possible, uh, but he wrote a book, and I didn't read it, but he doesn't believe, you know, hell at all. So, um, and, you know, that's, that's, as those things do, stirred up the evangelical waters a few years hey, back. Hey, hey, Pat. Yes. Uh, I, was, I was thinking, uh, like, throughout the week after we had this, this discussion, yeah. you know, last week. Now, when, when, you know, Stott has, like, a view of this annihilationism. Yes. How do you, and this is, this is probably, I don't want to derail whatever you have planned. No, that's all right. Today, that's but, fine. Um, it affects, like... What's your opinion on your view on how, if you if you have this view of annihilationism, like how does it affect the rest of your view of the gospel? Mm-hmm. Like it's it seems to, in my in, in from what you know what we talked about and what I was thinking about, it seems to affect I think almost maybe slightly, like the you know the whole gospel itself. Like it has to affect your view of sin a little bit. It's got to affect your view of the atonement a little bit for you to kind of reach <coughs> this conclusion. Yeah, it'd be a good question to ask uh, John Stott. He's probably engaged in much more interesting conversation now. But um, I, I don't think that, and I don't certainly, I, I am certainly no expert on John Stott. I mean, I've maybe read one of his commentaries on Galatians. I studied once, and 
you know, I've looked, tried to look as carefully around to find what I could on his position about annihilationism, since someone had mentioned, might even have been someone in here, his position. Um, but based on the passion with which I see him talk about Christ and everything, I would think that just the very idea of even being annihilated, um, of not being able to be with God, to him I would think not being able to know God and be with him <coughs> would make our whole human existence a complete waste almost of time. I, um, so I don't know. I, I think different people might, might look at it a little bit differently, and I, I certainly don't know him or his writings or his theology well enough to, to know how he would say, well, you know, well, how does it impact the atonement? Oh, how does it impact the gospel? And I guess the thought would be um, this, this people for what they were created ended up not being that. And, and uh, whether they're in hell eternally or whether they're annihilated, to him it would seem probably equally devastating that this happened to a human being. I guess. Uh, Gary, you had your hand up and then... I was going to say, there was a, an article written in the early days of Christianity today by Roger Nicole. <coughs> refuting the ideas of annihilationism I wish I uh, actually I have the quote of it in my other Bible mm-hmm. but he from what I recall he says that it uh, it deprives us of um, the realization of the urgency of the gospel it diminishes the magnitude of the soul <clears throat> and I think it um, and it affects the comprehension of the atonement mm-hmm. since wages for sin is punishable by extinction mm-hmm. means that Christ's punishment was extinguished. Uh, the sins that he paid for were extinguishable rather than the traditional understanding that the sins that Christ paid for were infinite uh, sins that required an infinite punishment that mm-hmm. Jesus finalized in those lone and mysterious hours from the 12th from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, mm-hmm. so there are some ramifications to to the doctrine of mm-hmm. the extinction of the soul and our understanding of justice and judgment, the, the uh, seriousness of sin, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will say I don't see that yet myself. I don't think annihilationism is necessarily the a valid. I don't see it in my view. I mean, I just I haven't maybe I haven't thought it through that much. I don't see it as impacting the atonement at all. Because I don't think that the main point of the gospel is to save people from hell. <laughs> to me, that's not the main point of the gospel. But isn't it the main point of the gospel? Is to reconcile us to God. Sins. If yeah. sins is being puffed out of existence, yeah. then that's, that's certainly less severe than eternal consequences. So why, does, why do our sins have to be atoned for? Because we can't enter God's presence. Right, yeah, we, we can't be reconciled to God otherwise. You know what I mean? Um so I don't, you know, I, I I need to think about that like I think a lot more uh, in terms of how does it impact the uh, how does it impact um, because I think more in terms of the saved than the lost. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think in terms of the gospel buys us uh, not buys us, but you know, the gospel secures for us eternity. And, and I'll get to the end of the second Tony in the glorious presence of God. And to me, that's more even meaningful than sort of the lost. I. I don't know how else to say to sort of articulate that at the Keep moment. In mind, it, it's a very much of a minority view. Yeah. Oh, it is. It's a view that has not been basically held throughout church history. Well, I think that's one of the main arguments against it. You honestly, know, it violates you know all the uh, yeah. historic Christian creeds yeah. that <coughs> maintain the eternal conscious punishment. Yeah. The Puritan Jonathan Edwards, etc. So, I mean, John Stott, as good of a scholar as he may be. Yeah. I think he wanes into insignificance in comparison to the giants of the past, both 
historically, theologically, and yeah. so on. Uh, and plus, as you said earlier, which is a fact, and I can point to it, he had, he had, he admits after being, I think, kind of scolded and, and challenged huh? by his colleagues huh? that he concludes that he's an he's an agnostic <coughs> uh-huh, yeah. when it comes to the uh, <coughs> believing on what the consequences right. are for pun- of the punishment of sin. Right. I can accept that. Yeah. That, yeah. That's different than being dogmatic yeah. about it. Yeah, I don't, you know, yeah. I think that's, I, I can't say anything against that. I, mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything against that. To me, uh, I, hell is, to me, as much as we can study in it, uh, and is, is what we do see in it, there are so many things in Scripture that can add to our, that we have to make sure we understand rightly. I think there's been a lot in Christianity that I've been exposed to that confuses the concepts of Hades and hell. The two are not the same. Um, and I think that that has confused people a lot. I, I think the Old Testament understanding where the Old Testament saints had no idea, I don't think, even when David prayed, I, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, David believed in Sheol when you die, period. He didn't believe there was a separate heaven and a separate hell. There's nothing in the Old Testament, I don't think, that indicates that they had some idea of eternal punishment or sort of eternal reward. So there's a lot of stuff like that I'd like to know. I'd like to know better. Um, I think hell is uh, devastating. I'm, I'm convinced that hell is eternal because it, there are certain things which I'll mention today that only make sense if hell is eternal. From the Scripture, I mean. Never mind sort of the other things. But it, I also know that hell is such a... And likewise with heaven, I don't really have a sense of what that's going to be like. I have some written words that don't resonate very well with me. I don't know what eternal glory in the presence of God without sin means, because I can barely get through that thought without, thought without having a sinful thought. I don't know. I think, you know, we think a toothache can be hell sometimes. You know what I mean? We don't know. We know what it's like to have sort of suffering end. And to think that we can say, well... I know what hell is. I, I kind of understand what hell might be like because um, I know what it's like to be really sick. And God forbid, I certainly hope to never get cancer. But there are those that have had cancer and have been close to death and come back again, and they might be able to think in their mind, "Well, hell is not coming back from that or something." But we still are very limited in what we. First of all, I think we're very limited in what Scripture teaches us about hell. I don't think it teaches us a lot, and I don't think it teaches us a lot about heaven either. To be honest with you. If a lot means familiarity and sort of resonates with my inner being. I am, to me, heaven is, ultimately, it's relationship and fellowship and closeness. and uni- I mean, the scripture says that I'm united, and you're, if you're in Christ, you're united to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So whatever heaven is, it's no more cool than that. Right? The new heavens and the new earth, I should say, because I don't want to just get the impression that, hey, we die and we're out of here. Well, there's going to be a new heaven and the new earth. You're going to be walking on solid ground. You know what I mean? So, I'm presently in Christ and Christ is in me. And I can't even get my head around that. How am I supposed to get my head around the geography of the thing? The spatial, you know what I mean? So, let's uh, yeah, let's get Tony's comment and then dive into some of the arguments One here. One of the things that I think it helps me, or at least I try to do, is um, <coughs> when I'm reading Scripture or thinking about something and I try to think logically, I have to remember that my logic is flawed. And therefore, to look in the Bible and try to figure things out using my own mind and my own thoughts, sometimes I can get lost in going in a a direction I don't need to be going or I shouldn't be going. So one of the things I try to do is just look at what is it actually saying, whether it makes sense to me or not. Mm -hmm. You know, and one of the things, 
thinking about this particular subject mm -hmm. is thinking about what is God's requirement? Mm -hmm. What is God saying to us about <coughs> who is going to go to hell? How does he get there? Um, what what happens there? And, mm -hmm. and vice versa. And mm -hmm. one of the things I think how it ties mm -hmm. into the atonement mm -hmm. is that in Scripture, I've, I, I've read and come across and, and read multiple times that there's no way that a human can atone for the sin, and that's how it ties in. And so, for you to be punished <coughs> does not atone for your sin. Right. For you to die does not atone for your sin. Right. For you to be annihilated mm. does not atone for your sin. Right. So, other than that, what could go on that God is talking about? And I think that's where the key lies as to... Is annihilationism acceptable mm. uh, method of, of what's going to happen in the future, or is it something different? And the Bible says it's something different. It goes on forever. Right. Well, except that John Stott would say, I, I don't think you're right about that. I think the Scripture <coughs> says something. That's my only point that I'm right. saying. Is John Stott would say, looking at Scripture, this would be his argument, whether he whether we conclude that or not, whether he could. And I, again, I'm not going to get too much into... Uh, we can't dialogue with him. He's not here. I mean, <laughs> but he would say... I disagree that Scripture teaches us that conclusively. That would be his response. So he'd be right with you in, in, in theory. Mm -hmm. you know? The hymn writer says, Not for sin could ever atone. No, could my tears forever flow? Um, mm -hmm. Not for sin could ever atone, but thy blood would not alone. Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh -huh. I mean, there's no atonement for sin outside of Christ. And the question is, does annihilate, does annihilate, you know, what, what would annihilation mean? Um, certainly it would be sin unatoned for and a complete I, eradication yeah, of a human that's how I look at it I look at it that it's kind of like brushed off that you're on you know okay you, 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 you let's say you're in a courtroom and you did a, a you did something you got arrested you're in front of a judge and the judge just says ah oh, you can go yeah it, oh, I wouldn't see it like that you but know what I mean no I mean, that's almost like yeah. the thought behind it yeah well, these are all thoughts that we can have. I mean, I, I can't, you know, uh, I can't stake my claim against any of them. All those thoughts are important. Do you have, to have a preference yourself, Pat, at this point? Uh, are you leaning in one direction, just to clarify? Yeah, and I'll tell you why. I mean, I, I think Scripture is conclusive that, despite however we try to think about it, we have to say, kind of along the line with what Tony's saying, is what does Scripture say? And uh, to me, there just seems to be too much there to suggest that. I, I think we have to strain the texts that are there to mean annihilation. Because even though there might be a potential case made for, say, like the word perish, what does that mean? What does destruction mean? Okay? And in some texts, it clearly seems to mean destruction means utterly destroyed, gonzo, you know, whatever. Um, okay, but there are yet other things that are a little bit more concerned to me. Uh, one is the resurrection of the body. We all get a resurrected body. Annihilationism to me makes no sense if we get a resurrected body. Why would that be the case? Why would I be resurrected just to have my body ultimately destroyed? That's a weird one to me. And I've seen nobody ask that question. And, and the little bit of study that I've done compared to what volumes I'm sure are written is if for all there's a resurrection of uh, to, to judgment and to damnation, why do I need to have a resurrected, reconstituted body that's going to go... I don't know, unless God's, is God going to sort of generate a new body just so I can suffer in it for a period of time? Or not me, but you know, a person's going to suffer in it for a period of time, which is ultimately a perishable body. It doesn't make sense that God's going to, in a resurrection, if we understand what that means, is going to constitute a body that can ultimately be destroyed again, all permanently. That just doesn't make sense to me. That to me is 
for me, that's the most uh, that's 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 the golden ticket for me. I just have a question. I, I was thinking, you know, and I don't really know the answer because I'm not here often. <laughs> um, is there an emotional? I don't know if you talked about this. Is there an emotional component to these scholars drawing these conclusions? Because you know, when you look at um, people who emotionally respond to the fact that God chooses mm-hmm. who is saved. You know, it's yeah. not fair, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So is there, do you suppose there's an emotional component to the annihilation argument that um, why would a God of love... Don't we fully bring our emotions to the scripture? No, I, yeah. I, we do, but I'm saying some, sometimes we maybe put scholars on a more of a pedestal and saying that they don't consider that their you know, right, right, right. To go there. So I'm just yeah, sure. I mean, I think I mean John Stott was clear to communicate that the idea that first of all he was angry in a sense, or he was annoyed, agitated by Christians that talk so cavalierly about hell, when the idea of someone suffering for all eternity, endless punishment, uh, should cause us to just almost break, as somebody has said a couple of times. And so yeah, I think it's very possible. Yeah, so I think it's, to me, there's nothing wrong with saying that bothers me too much. I really got to look in Scripture. I want to see, could I be wrong here? Could I be wrong? Is it possible that I've misunderstood this or that people have misunderstood this? And that's another argument, by the way. I can't, in my mind, fathom that God would allow His church to go for 2,000 years with a misunderstanding in the overwhelming majority opinion of genuine Christianity. I just don't think that God would have a little tiny minority of the church be right about something so important, particularly when, if you recall, at the beginning of the study, I referenced Hebrews, and uh, the writer for the Hebrews said that eternal judgment was one of those things that ought to be considered sort of the basic doctrines of the faith. It's something we ought to just, we shouldn't be having to spend a whole lot of time on, is what he was saying. Not that, not that it's not important, but that it's not the kind of thing that we need to be so wrapped up in getting our lives into. It's not going to impact our understanding, our relationship with Christ to the extent that some other things are that he needs to get to, that the writer to Hebrews needs to get to. So I just don't think that anything that's... uh, And this is where I'm using, hopefully, my redeemed logic, because we do bring our logic to the Scripture. I understand what you're saying. You're saying we don't use strictly worldly arguments, we don't use strictly worldly logic, which to me actually... If you understand what logic, properly speaking, is, there's no such thing as just worldly logic. Either your logic is legitimate or it's not. So we love. God. We could say that we're to love God with our logic, <coughs> as much as our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So maybe they didn't have that category. But certainly we're to love God with our logic. It just seems to me, if we put that together with so <coughs> eternal judgment is something that we is not something that should be an ongoing problem with us dealing with all the time. We ought to be able to sort of put it aside but you know we're going to see a lot of things particularly in our upcoming study in false teachers where you think that these things should be put aside by now but we got to engage them all the time if we're going to make disciples of the nations good God I exhausted myself with that long answer <laughs> I'm not even sure I breathed on that yikes yeah yeah about how ironic it would be for God to have allowed yeah. you know, a traditionalistic view of eternal yeah. judgment to be sustained in the church, how ironic it would be if God gave truth to the cults, yeah, like exactly. Jehovah's Witnesses sure. who, who denied eternal conscious sure. punishment. Now, yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses told me, 
this goes back to what Bob Wright think was yeah. saying. Emotion does play a part, I think, in people's uh, analysis of Scripture or the way in which they try to decipher things in the Bible. This Jehovah Witness says to me, he says, would you take a child and place a hot iron on their face and keep it there? Well, that's what you're telling me. If God is the God that punishes uh, in hell forever, then that's what you're telling me, that that's the kind of God that you are <coughs> exhibiting. Because oh, give me a break. <laughs> Not even a close comparison. I says you don't understand the severity of sin. Yeah. You know, and the holiness of God. Well, that's the pain. The, yeah. yeah Thanks, because I was gonna, I was gonna put that in reverse for you, but you just did it yourself. We don't understand the holiness one of God. Point I just want to add that you've used John Stott as sort of like the model of annihilationism, mm-hmm. but he's really in a vast minority among them mm-hmm. because almost all of them, I don't know of any uh, well-known ones at least mm-hmm. who don't hold to conditional immortality mm-hmm. as well as annihilationism because they are more compatible, believing in the intermediate state <coughs> and that there is a capacity to survive outside of the body mm-hmm. according to conditional immortalists, they believe that you, mm-hmm. can, you don't survive a moment until after your resurrection, then then your alertness, your your mm-hmm. consciousness comes into being. But between death and your bodily resurrection, you are in a, you are in a state of nothingness consciously. And I think and we can even closer. appeal to the Old Testament to that because there we do learn about their thoughts about Sheol. The Old Testament, everywhere in the Old Testament, non-existence is not an option. Sheol was what, and even if. You look at the surrounding cultures in that time. I mean, it's just always been sort of... It's in us. It's in us. That something happens after we die. I mean, everyone sort of almost knows that as part of our wiring or something. Tony, then Mark, then I'm going to dig in again. I was thinking, we have the benefit of being being taught um, that, at least from what I've heard from other people Mm -hmm. and, and from what I've read in that, is that it... Sin does not have to do with the actual event that happened that you did against God. It has to do with who it's against. Well, it has to do with the kingdom God. you're born into. I mean, we're right. born slaves to, to slaves and to Satan. Given that attitude, huh? we we have a better understanding as to what is the correct punishment mm-hmm. as to an offense against God. It's not the offense; it's the fact that it's against God. And if it's against God, then it deserves the most severe. Yeah, and to me. Uh, if let's say I didn't, it's hard to unknow something, right? I mean, it's almost impossible to say, okay, I'm going to pretend what it's. It'd be like me saying, I'm going to pretend what it's like to be be a woman. Well, that, that's stupid. All right, uh, seriously. I mean, all right, I've been peeing standing up now for you know, wow. 53 years. All right, I don't know what it's like to be a woman. I don't know what the emotions of a woman are like. I don't know what it's like for a woman to go through what a woman goes through. I don't. I can't. I can't pretend to know what it's like to be a woman. And so sometimes I can't pretend that, okay, what's it like to really think that I never learned to think about Scripture and I'm going to now just say, okay, based on just what little I'm trying to think about, could I say annihilationism is as is, is severe as eternal punishment? I, I won't be able to draw a conclusion based on that. Yeah. I don't have that in Greek or Latin. <laughs> Too bad. I think it's um, almost an escape for people. I think you, you, you mentioned about how... Um, um, how it's very difficult to describe uh, heaven and hell because mm-hmm. of the uh, you could say um, the lack of certainty that the, yeah. the textual evidence gives us and there's a mm-hmm. lot of ambiguity and mystery mm-hmm. um, I will say though that um, one thing we can do in evangelizing the world is 
one thing our experience proves uh, undeniably is the blessings of experiencing the presence of God. Uh, that's, you and know. With, with hell, it is the absence yeah. of God. And what we can do is tell them what the presence of God brings to the table when you're born again compared to you want to go in the path that which you'll be you're saying now you'll be satisfied in with the absence of God well think of all the violinists violinists violist part of you and what the potential that you have to do mm. when you're given over yeah. to yourself and I think that you know, so many ways this goes can go and yes we could we could have that conversation but we better be also very much immersed in the here and now because God hasn't given us a gospel that is strictly for the hereafter. There's something right now that if a person right now sort of doesn't know God, the hereafter doesn't really. Doesn't that's why that. it's exactly here and now. And that's exactly born again believer. That's right. We have experienced the presence of God. And that's what I mean. That's they why it's so precious. With the exactly. That that should move us to not just the. And thank you because that sort of gives me a little again segue. I should be concerned not just about the eternal destiny and help but in a certain sense the, the absence of God that they're living with right now because I can't do anything about it later mm-hmm. I may not be able to do anything about it now but I can hopefully bring the goodness of God to that person okay questions on the table for a moment then let's move on to a few things uh, I just want to mention we mentioned four categories that Stott had offered they were the um, there are four arguments he said that he, he thought uh, need to yield to the supreme authority of scripture that was language, imagery, justice, and universalism. We talked about language and imagery last week. Justice. He says, Would there not then be a serious disproportion between sins consciously committed in time and torment consciously experienced throughout eternity? I do not minimize the gravity of sin as rebellion against God our Creator and shall return to it shortly. But I question whether eternal, I question whether eternal conscious torment is compatible with the biblical revelation of divine justice. Unless, perhaps, as has been argued, the impenitence of the lost continues throughout eternity. Because, apparently, that would be sort of a rejoinder that some would offer is, look, the person continues unrepentant for all eternity, and therefore, there's an appropriateness to the ongoing absence of God. Because for all eternity, they cannot repent. They cannot turn to God. And they certainly will not. And and I would say at that point, they cannot, obviously, right? Because it's, it's... too late. Uh, Rob Bell would argue they could, that there's many opportunities after <coughs> after death to turn to Christ. So, unless we're saying that, which again, that's not real compelling because you can't repent. So that's a different thing. Um, but, so his, I question whether eternal conscious torment for sins committed in time is consistent with <coughs> eternity, which is sort of outside the idea of time. Now, once again, we're very limited <coughs> Because we are living in time. And there are all kinds of philosophical arguments about what time is. There's the A, th- A theory of time and the B theory of time. And, you know, does God see everything as just sort of all right before him at one time? You know, we don't have to ponder those things. God hasn't revealed those things. And I don't think he wants us wasting a lot of time on those things while people are suffering here and now. Not just dying and going to hell, but suffering right now without Christ. Okay, there are people suffering immensely right now without Christ. So, I don't know what you think about that. <clears throat> Serious disproportion between sins consciously committed in time and torment consciously experienced throughout eternity. What, what, any thoughts on that? 
you don't have to have any thoughts. We can move right on to the next thing. I know. <laughs> but I think in terms of these are sins committed in time versus conscious torment carried on throughout all eternity. Yeah. We just don't know the degree of punishment that persons will endure eternally. Um, I've read a lot about this subject. Um, it's not that a person loses his personhood right. uh, uh, endlessly mm-hmm. uh, at some point, but that there... Um, I don't want to say that there's a mitigating mm-hmm. of the punishment, mm-hmm. but I think the key is that Roman, Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible says, for without are dogs and whoremongers and sorcerers. Yeah, I was going to bring up that verse. You know? So I think that maybe where the emphasis should lie mm-hmm. is the idea of the separation, um, eternal separation from God. That to me is more comprehensible yeah. than the, the, the perpetual, not mm-hmm. that I want to diminish the reality of that mm-hmm. too, but the perpetuity of punishment mm-hmm. is a reality, but I don't think we emphasize the separation from God, the darkness, the outer darkness. Yeah, I think that verse in Revelation 22 that you're talking about is so you got you got the New Jerusalem and you got people that are in the, you know, the beautiful sort of city, you know what I mean? Uh, but then it also says, outside of sorcerers and murderers and everything else. And it seems to me, unless there's a limited time to the city, the new city, the heavenly Jerusalem, etc., then there can't be, there be a limited time to those who are without. You know what I mean? So I think that's another verse that argues in favor of eternality. And I didn't even encounter that verse in that context until this week when I was thinking about what is the tree of life? And I don't want to get distracted by that question, but what is the tree of life and what does it mean? That verse and the revelation sort of spoke to me about again okay so you got we know that the new Jerusalem we know that that's an eternal discussion that that's, 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 that's going to be something eternal um, there's Nancy Demers calling me for a ride to church I think and, uh, and, uh, and then there's, the, there's the, those that are on the outside so I, th- I think it's two I, I, those have to be simultaneous um, it, it, there's not a logical connection between sense committed and time need to be punished in a set period mm-hmm. of time. Mm-hmm. Because the, the punishment is not based on how long the sin took, mm-hmm. but rather the, the what that sin demands. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, we have people mm-hmm. that commit heinous crimes mm-hmm. and they're given seven life sentences in our current justice system. Huh? So you're not speaking, and they're not going to serve it. You know? Right. But what you're telling them is your sin was worth this much. Exactly. Um, good so point. it doesn't matter... Yeah, interesting point. In yeah, interesting. Like if we could, if we could kill you six times and bring you back, right. we'll put you to death the seventh time for what you've done. Yeah, who's got a hand over there? Is there another hand over there? Yeah, Barry. Sorry, um, I was just saying that that verse about outside of the dark yeah. and sorcerers is actually used for annihilation. As a really? Yeah, because they would say that God would not would want us in heaven to see the horrors of these. The sufferings that just yeah. match our joy and our blessings. Yeah. But let's face it, they're not there's nothing there that says they're seeing that. You know what I'm saying? And we're talking about we're talking about the revelation is a very hard place to go, I understand, to develop any particular theology, but it certainly can be it certainly can be there to buttress what we already sort of know, you know. I mean so many different views on some of those things, but um yeah, I mean whatever's gonna go on, we're not gonna be it's not like we're going to be, you know, discompassionately walking by people that are suffering, <coughs> like we might do today. You see a beggar on the street or whatever. Not, not that it's 
I'll get into that, but just all the suffering we see going on that we're somewhat ambivalent towards. Right? I mean, we're ambivalent towards a whole lot of suffering, aren't we? I don't want to get into that, but I, I would challenge any one of us that we're, we're not as sensitive to the suffering that goes around us on a, goes on around us as we could be. All right. So, I, I don't think that's a real strong argument in any case, this argument that, that Scott refers to, and others do too. I should say that Scott's certainly not unique. There are others that have these same sort of arguments. I mean, he's not alone in this. Uh, and then universalism, but he's not using it in the way you think he is. The eternal existence of the impenitent in hell would be hard to reconcile with the promises of God's final victory over evil or with the apparently universalistic texts which speak of Christ drawing all men to himself, of God uniting all things under Christ's headship, reconciling all things to himself through Christ, and bringing every knee to bow to Christ and every tongue to confess his lordship, so that in the end, God will be all in all to everybody and everything. And his point would be, it's hard to, it's hard to think of there being an eternal presence in hell where God obviously isn't all in all, where God, in his argument, that God, people are not gloriously confessing the Lordship of Christ. We have our own image of that Philippians verse, but we kind of think of Jesus with his foot on the neck of people saying, okay, you're Lord, you're Lord. You know? But that verse says that people will declare it in a glorious way. you know. So I think uh, Stott's point and other ones, other people who make that point, do so because they said, these texts do not lead me to universalism because of many others which speak of the terrible and eternal reality of hell. But they do lead me to ask how God can in any meaningful sense be called everything to everybody while an unspecified number of people still continue in rebellion against him and under his judgment. It would be easier to hold together the awful reality of hell and the universal reign of God if hell means destruction and the impenitent are no more. Interesting argument. I think very quickly that goes right against in Romans 9 when you look at that he created vessels of wrath. He wants them you know, it, 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 it's like this is this was his plan. Mm -hmm. You know, not that he would want anyone to suffer, but he created those and those that would not believe for a purpose. We'll have to wait till our discussion on Romans chapter nine. Work in a way, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah. And there's uh, even within Christianity, there are wide-ranging views on what Romans chapter nine is all about. Wow. There are those, that particularly our, yeah, you know, particularly our Armenian brethren that would argue that that is not a text that I use for individual salvation but it's a text that talks about God's election of peoples and kingdoms and that kind of thing and that the reason why we interpret Romans that way is because we bring to it our western individualistic look on things which I don't know who this brother is but I see he's new in class here and I see that uh, Gary has mentioned someone's going to be teaching on Romans 9 and I bet you're him I bet I am. Amen. Well, who are you? My name is Roy Owens. Hey, Roy Owens. I'm Pat, and this is everyone. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we look forward to that. Um, is that next week? Starting next week? Yes. So, for maybe two weeks. Oh, yeah. Jacob, so I love Esau or Hades. That's He's right. going to deal with yeah. that text good, good. in detail. Yeah. Good, I, good. I don't know if we're going to... We, we can go through the whole entire chapter. Sure, but, yeah. Uh, we're going to really concentrate on, like, uh, verses 11 through 13. Great. I look forward to that. So, no. keep that in mind. Tony. Good, good. Good little plug there. Uh, yeah. um, when you say that you know, Stott's argument about the reconciling of all things, yeah. what about the devil? Right. Um, yeah. Is, is that feasible to think that he's going to be annihilated? Right. And the angels that rebel. That's a very good point. God? Yeah. So, uh, so uh, I just did a series on the devil, actually. Oh, cool. And I, and I didn't hear all of what you had going on here, huh? but. Uh, there's several polls that are out that say that, uh, and these are like 2016, I think early 2017, 
and they say that uh, only 58% of professing Christians mm -hmm. believe that there is a literal devil. Really? Personal so if there's no literal devil, there's no literal hell. Right. And so then this kind of feeds into That's what it. you're saying. Then what happens? Yeah, and and so you, you, go? you understand why we have to have a systematic theology. Yeah, amen. That's right. Mm -hmm. You have to have, and by systematic, I mean a system of, your theology has to sort of be sort of systematized. There has to be a way of connecting all the dots. There has to be the big grand narrative picture of Scripture, which we have to have right to begin with. If you don't know what that is, go back to Genesis. And we have to know exactly sort of what's going on. We have to have, to the extent that we can, and there are some things that are still a little bit maybe vague for different people at different times, but we have to have a systematic approach. It has to be a way that we can have a system of understanding how this all comes together. And the Scripture is gloriously interconnected and the the, um, the connection between the covenants and the promises and all these the old covenant and the new covenant all these things none of them make sense without the others um, I think we also have to understand that God's glory has two sides mm. and it's all connected at the apex to his holiness mm -hmm. if God's glory didn't have two sides mm -hmm. then he wouldn't be just mm. And even have goodness, and it all culminates. Yeah, it's uh, you're getting a little more sort of uh, religiously philosophical there, which is fine. We and we have God, to use philosophy in our understanding of scripture. God said, God said to Moses, you can't look at me, at me and live. Mm -hmm. Right. Because yeah. we are simple. Mm -hmm. so that's the two sides of his glory. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, a. Yeah, it's worth mentioning. <laughs> Let's take a quick look at a couple of sort of thoughts. Uh, arguments, again, this is sort of why I am, uh, you know, I remain convinced. I still hold a hope that the church has been wrong for 2,000 years. <laughs> I don't want hell to be eternal. <laughs> I don't even want it to be a, I don't want people, you know what, if the question is, uh, do I am I concerned about the, the idea of an eternal hell life after death of course is that any more pressing than the person knowing Christ here and now and I and that's why I think we live so, some of us depending on how we were brought up our the scripture the gospel was never integrated into our daily life it was when I die, I'm out of here. You know what I mean? I'll fly away, oh glory, right? And that's okay. I mean, yeah, that's true. But you better make sure that I'm staying here, oh glory. It's, it's just as important. Because it is just as important. Yes? Yeah, um, last week, um, I should have spoke up because I was really um, kind of... I, I, I always was taught, I think, or believed. I think it's maybe because I was taught it that hell was eternal because the people um, who go to hell will be suffering, having to suffer the judgment of sin mm -hmm. on themselves. Mm -hmm. And that judgment is eternal. Mm -hmm. it, it has to do with sin mm -hmm. and um, how much, you know, uh, you know, judgment sin needs. Yes. And, you know, then the other side of the coin that, um, you know, how powerful uh, Jesus' um, mm -hmm. you know, efficacious was yes. on the cross. Mm -hmm. 
was was so that we you know yeah. don't have to suffer that yeah. eternal judgment yeah. for sin yeah. because he was you know efficacious mm-hmm. for us you know so that's what I was always taught and and that's why it needs yeah. to be eternal yeah I, I don't and I think that's legitimate I don't uh, <laughs> I hope you haven't heard anything that says that that's not the case because it certainly is the case that we've been rescued from that. Um, I just always want to remind us there's something more important than just not being punished forever. <laughs> I think Ann needs to, because she's kind of been in and out in different times, but Pat was trying to present the options of views that persons may hold yes. regarding the afterlife and punishment for sin. Yes. And there's a body of evangelicals that have sprung up in recent years John Stott being one of the most prominent ones who were promoting the idea that the soul is uh, extinguishable at a certain point in future punishment that they will endure and that's called annihilationism but Pat was only he's not, he wasn't promoting it he was just posing it as, as a, a deeper look at the subject yeah. so, so strictly taking his thought and I mean sometimes this is what you do you take your belief system and then you bring up against it some argument. It, you, it, it's, it's not unlike physical exercise. Yeah. You think you're in pretty good shape. You think you're a good runner until someone says, hey, listen, you've been running at level track for 15 years. Why don't you come out and run the hills in New England with me for a couple of weeks, right? Mm-hmm. And then you find out, wow, you know, my muscles can get stronger. I can get, I can get a better, you know. And that's what, that, to me, that's what, not that this is heretical, but, you know, other beliefs can be very helpful for. They can really help, you know, really helped sculpture those muscles yeah and to kind of go off that I remember when I was like just like recently saved like I would listen to all these different preachers and all these different like teachers who would say oh I've learned the truth oh I've you know gone yeah. this way and I've learned the truth and it's really easy for me at that point to get lost in and say oh my gosh I haven't had it right this whole time so huh? seeing the other belief yeah. and having your faith tested and saying yes I can preserve persevere through it yeah it's a huge yeah. faith strengthener yeah it is a faith and strengthener it's, it's a good point it's because it does it reinforces it it, it and uh, God certainly he wants our faith reinforced all the time uh, he's, he's always sort of growing our faith through trial and difficulty and we like to think of that in terms of strictly emotional and physical but there's certainly a spiritual things that God will bring against us and has brought against the church for years I mean when people came together for the Nicene Creed you know when they got together back in Nicaea they were missing arms and legs and eyes and things that had been torn out for their positions on the faith so yeah this is um this is just to say, okay, so if we're not careful, Scripture can be looked at and things can be... We can get... We, that's why we always come back to the Scripture so we don't get too far away from the truth. The other thing that just occurs to me, um, when we say that we wish hell was eternal, um, we, have, we have to be careful there. And I know where that comes from. Yeah. It's certainly something that we don't desire people to suffer eternally. Right. Um, but we should want... God to be glorified in the way that He's going to be, yeah, sure. over and above anything else. Yeah. And so, in that sense, we should want hell to be eternal because God does. Yeah. Um, and that's not a desire for people to suffer, but it's a, it's a prioritizing of the glory of God over anything else that we want. Yeah. I, honestly, I just for me, this is my own sense. And on this side of the sod, I don't think that my mind is sort of holy enough to mm-hmm. rightly appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. So. At this point, however, I forget who it is that said this. might be Greg Kokel. At this point, moreover, an argument based on God's justice may be brought against annihilationism. 
Does the short time of punishment envisioned by the annihilationist actually pay for all the unbeliever's sin and satisfy God's justice? Tony was asking about this. If it does, then God's justice has not been satisfied and the unbeliever should not be annihilated. But if it does, then the unbeliever should be allowed to go to heaven and he or she should be not be annihilated. In either case, annihilation is not necessary or right. So he's simply saying, so if they're punished for 10,000 years, does that mean that Okay, now God's going to annihilate them because their sin has been, they've served their sentence. But then the question, the retort would be, well, if they've served their sentence, then why can't they just go on to heaven? Like purgatory. Yeah, exactly. Uh, same guy. Why does Jesus repeatedly say that hell's fire is eternal and never quenched? It's because the task it was meant to accomplish continues forever. A fire that completely consumes what it burns, annihilationism, no longer blazes. Hell's furnace of fire is everlasting because the fuel for the fire, the wicked, is never consumed. The fire is never ending because the punishing is never ending. That is Jesus' point. And I think that that's a very valid point. We tend to think over literally in terms of the discussions that Jesus has about the fire being uh, eternal or the smoke of their torment rising up forever. So someone look at that and say, well, it's the smoke that rises forever, not the actual fire. And I think we miss the point when we do that. I think that we think too much in terms of our current physicality when we say that in some way, okay, you, you throw something in, the, in, in a fire and eventually it's fully consumed. It no longer provides fuel, right? I mean, the fire is a... Things that burn, this is just chemistry, okay? So if the thing is completely burned up and consumed, it's no longer going to burn. And that's why the annihilation, annihilationists would say eventually you're going to be destroyed. Why would he? Um, did, did, would he believe hell forever? Hell? Huh? Would he believe hell exists forever? No. Okay. Because I was going to say that right. he couldn't because once you finally run out of fuel, in other words, there's only a limited amount of people exactly. on the earth that are going to finally, when the Lord returns, right. that it's finally going to be burned up. And then mm -hmm. what's the use of hell? It's, yeah. There's no need for it anymore. Destroy. This is Doug Moo. Talked about Doug Moo a little last night. Douglas Moo. Destroy, for example, does not always mean loss of being, but often means loss of well-being. Okay? The key words for destroying destruction can also refer to land that has lost its fruitfulness, as in Ezekiel 16 and uh, Ezekiel 6 and 14, to ointment that is poured out wastefully and to no apparent purpose. There's another word there for destroying destruction. To wineskins that can no longer function because they have holes in them. Okay, there's another uh, Greek word used for that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. To a coin that's useless because it's lost, right? Although it's still somewhere, but it's lost, right? Or to the entire word, world that perishes as an inhabited world as in the flood, Second Peter 3, 6. So the entire world perished, but it did not cease to be. So in none of these cases does, do the objects cease to exist. They cease to be useful or to exist in their original intended state. That's very important. And that's why I save these things for the very end because what I want to do is show where I think Scripture ultimately does point us away from annihilationism. As much as if you look in various places, it may seem like it's an option that could be considered when you take the totality of Scripture and the ways that some of these words can be used. So if someone contextually uses one word to say that perish means ultimately destroy, then you have to be able to say, okay, of the however many hundreds of times perish occurs in the context that it occurs in, what does it mean? Hmm. That's why word search is a helpful, but they're, 
That's, that's, that's not the end of the day. You have to understand context. We have to understand that Greek and Hebrew had ways of saying things to their original audience that are very hard for us to capture at times. Not that that's so here, but... So, lost, perishing, destroyed can mean, I think as he said here, that the thing itself continues to exist, but it's no longer useful to the original function to which it was intended. And I think that's why, for example, N.T. Wright believes that hell is a place where forever people are just in a process of becoming less and less human for all eternity. They're losing everything that looks like the image of God forever and ever and ever and ever. And that's... To me, that's even scarier than torment. I mean, you know, different things spook us. Uh, this way of understanding death and destruction comports completely with our common sense use of those notions. In fact, most of the time we do not use them to mean cease to exist. If a tornado destroys a house, the debris remains, but it's useless for its intended purpose as a suitable shelter. If bad news destroys our vacation, the enjoyment is gone, but the holiday labors on. I think those are good points. So often we think strictly in terms of um, physical ontology. We think strictly in terms of the physical object itself. We don't think in terms of function, for example. What, what, what is the intended function or the intended purpose for something? And it can be argued much of what we read in the Old Testament you know, of the creation texts. It's been argued by some that we're missing the point there. By trying to look at this as an argument, for scientific argument for a physical reality, what we should be seeing is the way the Mesopotamian culture of the time would have understood it, which is God was establishing functions and order and, and use, that kind of thing. Right? I mean, a computer's not a computer until all the pieces are together in it and it's doing what it's... As soon as you turn it on, for all practical purposes, it's a computer. So, destruction can certainly mean it's just no longer its intended use. And, and I think, for a long time, I've been sort of um, mildly content to think of hell in that way myself, is that we, I, I call it the place of incomplete humanity. Uh, I guess I can make that sort of my closing. Hell to me is the place of incomplete, uh, hopeless humanity, uh, where whatever happens, I don't believe it's torture. I, I just don't think God delights in torturing, and Scripture doesn't use the language of torture. Um, you can say, yeah, but it says fire. Isn't that torture? Well, fire doesn't mean physically burning. It means ongoing, constant judgment and everything else. So I don't think torture happens eternally. But I think we lose completely what it means to be a human being created in the image of God. We don't even have... I, I think it's a place where even the, <coughs> the wicked, as we would like to call them in this earth, uh, always have... You know, I never watched like The Sopranos. Okay? story about the mob family um, but I see crime and I see people living lives but they also have people that they love and that are close to them you know and I refer to the Sopranos because that's the whole big Italian family element right where family is everything in the Italian community if we can push that stereotype a little bit and so yeah they have love they care for their kids you might see them wicked because they're out shooting and destroying people but look at how well the guy takes care of his wife and kids. So there's this like little touch of the image of God there anyway. Not so in hell. And, and nor will it ever be. Um, it's just eternal. Just, we know what it's like to not have hope. I mean, we know what it's like to have our hearts broken about something. Uh, whether it's a child that's gone astray. Or any number of things that happen. And to just feel like, you know, sort of, there's, there's no... Living in a constant... I often think of hell as, you know... Uh, or I have thought of hell not often because I don't often think of hell you know if you lean back in a chair that second just before you tip over I think hell feels like that forever 
that, that second of terror you get just before the chair goes over and you don't know if it's going to go over or not. I think you live on that edge of peril constantly in hell. I, I just can't imagine the wickedness of it. We strain to come up with what must be the reality of hell. And we certainly are so grateful that presently, presently, we have this Christ in us and who we're in Him and we're part of one another. That's another thing I imagine hell is like. If there's no connection with God, there's no connection with one another. There's no common humanity. There's no sinner's party. There's no, you know, rather laugh with the sinners and cry with the saints going on, Billy Joel. You know, there's the, it's just awful. I, I, it's just ultimate awfulness. Um, and, uh, but let's also recall that and remember that we're called to repent now. And we see in the book of Acts, although you do see a referment to judgment at one point, I think in Acts 17 and maybe 13, we never see, never see Paul preaching against, preaching hell. Uh, we do see him in the Galatians talk about let them be anathema, you know, forever accursed. But it's, it's very much a here and now thing. Let's be very interested here and now with getting people, uh, sharing the love of Christ with them now. You can't share it with them after they die. So we, we can warn about the wrath to come. Paul does. He says, flee from the, you know, from the wrath to come. But we want that to be part of our... But let's make sure we love here and now as well. Um, some people say they're living presently in a hell. and Though we know that's not ultimately true, there are some people living in such horrible, apart from Christ circumstances, that there's a foretaste of agony divine. You know, Just like we have a foretaste of glory divine. Um, yeah, so I hope, I hope then that the study has been helpful in a number of ways. Just getting you to think about it a little more deeply, appreciate the gospel more, appreciate Christ more, first and foremost, and uh, let our hearts break for people that right now are the sorcerers and murderers, adulterers that are outside, the dogs, which, which we were also, you know, but we were washed. So let's let's pray that we be used in that way. Uh, I'll ask our brother Roy if he would mind closing in prayer for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing your children to come together today to listen to your word. Thank you that you uh, have preserved your word for us today uh, so that we can grow from your word. Um, We ask that you go with us now as we go from here and, and keep us in your ways. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.